0: Hi there, and welcome to our podcast, Art City Amsterdam. From Remen to Dumas and from Liza to McQueen, Amsterdam has long been home to some of the world's most important artists.
1: In our podcast, we will provide you a taste of art in this remarkable city. Together with our special guests, we will take you on a walk through the art scene of Amsterdam. We, your hosts, Rubia Balsam and Joost Bosland,
0: speak to artists, curators, politicians and collectors about what they love about the city.
1: Whether you're a long-time resident or planning your first visit, This podcast will inspire you to explore new and familiar corners of the Amsterdam art world.
0: Today we are visiting the amazing Dutch artist Rémi Jungeman in his studio here in Amsterdam. Rémi, you are born and raised in Suriname, a former colony of the Netherlands, and a descendant of the Surinamese Maroons who escaped enslavement on the Dutch plantations. You create abstract, large sculptural compositions, In a new visual language that represents a metaphysical vision that enriches our perspective on art history. About your work, the New York Times states, Jungermann places that cultural legacy with its objects, rituals, cosmology in relation to modernism, particularly by Piet Mondriaan and the Stel movement. You've also exhibited works at the 58th Venice Biennale at the Dutch Pavilion and various international art museums. And currently, you are represented by Ron Manders Gallery in Amsterdam and the Fritman Gallery in New York. Remy, thank you for having us. Uh, sitting here in your studio, we are treated with a sneak preview already of some of your new works. Actually, they look amazing. What is it like for you when you spend time in your studio?
2: This is my safe space. It's a place where I like to be. And yeah, I have my daily practice. So, uh, yeah.
0: When was the first time you, I would say, you fell in love with the city? that you feel connected to the city?
2: The very first time I arrived in Amsterdam. I don't know if I fell in love or I got confused (laughs) but at the center station at the time all these trams were leaving and I thought like wow is this the place I'm going to live because I thought that I need to build up skills to understand how to live in this place just because the tram were just driven in one direction they could not just move right? You could not just turn to the left or to the right. (laughs) It's a great metaphor. (laughs) And that was actually, that was the way I would experience the city. You know Amsterdam is so diverse. There are so many corners, so many things are happening and it's hard to pinpoint just one close experience.
1: But you've lived here for 30 years now, if you're doing the math. Yeah. Uh, You might be leaving soon, but something kept you here for 30 years. You could have gone anywhere and you decided to stay. What, what, What might have kept you here?
2: I think like the art practice is amazing in Amsterdam to have your art practice here. And like all these places sort of like give me open new doors in the city. It's an amazing city.
0: And looking outside your window, well, we're looking at some, some green park. Can you describe a little bit the neighborhood? you're um...
2: Well, this is Amsterdam South Oost, the mere. I have my studio here for the last eight years. But the Belmer has been built, I think, in the 70s, as a place where people would move from the city to this area. but during independence of Suriname, a lot of Surinamese people actually came to the Netherlands by the idea that it wouldn't be a great independence. Like politicians were talking about let's flee the country to the Netherlands. So a lot of Surinamese people actually ended up in Amsterdam side so of the Belmer and nowadays, the Belmar is actually a very that diverse society with a lot of different uh, cultures.
0: So do you feel very much at home here?
2: Not necessarily. I think I feel home in very different places. I've been to India, Indonesia, Africa. So I feel home where I'm comfortable. So I feel as much home in Amsterdam so always, as I feel as home in Amsterdam, South, where I live. And I work in South Oost. I live in the South of the city.
0: So what I noticed when I walked in, um, <coughs> there was actually some, some music playing in the background. There were some, some well, i never heard before, some drums, and you described it as some clay drums, uh, specifically mm. specifically from India. Yeah. Having uh, done some, some research about your work and also about your uh, artistic practice, India doesn't really drop that much. So can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with India?
2: Oh wow, it's an interesting question because being born in Suriname, I grew up among different cultures. So like people from in India who, who actually came to Suriname after abolition of slavery. So I grew among these people. So India, Indonesia, Africa, that's sort of like familiar place. Like the first time I went to India, I came out of the aeroplane where uh, was in the south of India. I kind of smelled this jasmine tree. Then I kind of immediately felt home because of smell. And it's interesting that India maybe or Indonesia doesn't resonate directly in my work. But I think that somewhere there should be an echo of India or Indonesia, I think but not literally.
0: I think at the moment you're working at something. I think I'm seeing some kind of installation, some white some, some arches, I would say. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment?
2: At the moment I'm working on my solo exhibition in the Stalic Museum. This will open on November 19th this year. And what I'm doing now is sort of creating a few Dodatagons. These are like the 12 corner circle. So what you see here is actually sort of like a construction to make parts of the 12 corner. And then I will sort of like connect them later together to get like this
1: dodecagon that- at the end. Which will be huge if I'm, if I'm extrapolating from this sketch to those. those, no, those they're yeah. like
2: the exact size here. This, like this the, is the size. The, the, yeah. the diameter is uh, six feet. like one and a half meter they will be this size yeah I think it's quite a size one and a half meter according the size of my studio (laughs) but what I'll do with these dodatagons is to put them above every entrance of the space I'm showing my work and it is also sort of like to connect to make the whole space a shrine and then even on top of the door there is a piece and those pieces on top of the doors are inspired by, by an idea of object you put on top of your door in Suriname to protect, actually, the house, to protect the inside.
0: I was also thinking about, because I visited Suriname a couple of times, I was born there as well, but also that when you pass on the maroon villages that are settled nearby the Botapassi River. Then you also, when you enter the village, you have like these gateways you right. have to walk through. Yeah. Does it have a connection also in, in that matter?
2: Yeah, it does have a connection to those gateways because the gateway is actually to protect the village. It's more <laughs> symbolic, right? Like a gateway, you have to go through the gateway. Normally, like, so like in, in Winti practices from my... African roots do come from my mom's side and my dad's side do have like European roots. Anyway, during ancestral rituals, before you pass the door, the gate, you have to sort of get through a ritual of sort of like wash your hands, wash your face with a calabash and some herbs in. So it's sort of like symbolized like when you enter the door before entering the village or the house. You need to sort of like purify yourself and sort of like adding these and Suriname is called Prasara Sibi. That is actually a broom like object you find in the palm trees. You know, like before the fruits grow in the palm trees, they kind of develop in a broom like object. So this object, they add like pieces of cloth in the color white. Blue, and red.
0: Why those three colors?
2: Those three colors do have meaning in Winti practice. And they sort of like connect to, to different pantheons in Winti. So let's say like the, the red connects to the water, the blue to the forest, I think, and white to the sky. So they have reference. You might think that's maybe the, uh, the, the flag, the Dutch flag. But there might be an influence for sure in why choosing colors because of the influence of the colonizer in the culture.
0: Looking at your work here in your studio, I also noticed the use of cloth, of textiles. Can you tell us a little bit more where they come from and why you actually use them?
2: But What I'm using in my work is mainly textiles with a grid. So these gridded textiles are are also used in different winti practices. So for for different rituals, you use a different color combination.
1: You used the word interwoven earlier, which I think is a useful term when when looking at your work. For our listeners who who can't see all the beauty that surrounds us here, could you describe your visual language in a few sentences? How does one recognize a Remy Jungermann work after listening to a podcast? (laughs) That's a good one. I think you'll
2: recognize my work if you take time to look at it close, to look at the details, because from a distance it might sort of reference maybe constructivist or the style. But the moment you go closest, you will see the difference in material. So I think like what's making a difference in my work according what people might think at the first moment is the use of different materials as textiles, as clay. Then the clay is especially kaolin. Kaolin is clay which porcelain is made from. It's actually very strong material. So the combination of materials that might confuse you a little bit, that's, I guess, that's something in the work. If you look at, for instance, the wall installations, then they're just not only horizontal or vertical lines, which you would find in the West European context or whatever, but by adding, for instance, bottles, as I said, bottles, nails, clay, they become different objects. They become like an altar-like object, a shrine, because they become carriers and holder by carrying and holding stop is like, uh, altar is also like a interactive work. And if you, for instance, just look at your your nightstand or the plank in the restroom where you have like all your objects, you know, like it's altar kind of place because it's a place where you have your special things you use daily. So those works might recall that reference
1: and it's the second time you've used the word shrine. The first time was to describe what you're turning the Stedelijk Museum into in, in November. You tossed it off quite casually. Oh, I have a solo exhibition at the Stedelijk in November as if that's the most normal thing in the world. <laughs> but but for a Dutch artist, in many ways, it's a crowning achievement. Wow, yeah. How, how long have you known about this?
2: I know it about a year now. I'm happy doing a show in the Stedelijk Museum, but the thing is that the moment somebody announced to you that you won the lottery then you won the lottery right that's nothing more than winning a lottery so i think like the big step was when the rain wolves came to the studio He just came for a studio visit and then he said like man we would like to do a show with you i said oh, wow that's great you know like let's work on it so yeah it's a big thing yeah it's a very big thing but at the same time it's also important for me now to focus and to try not to get crazy only about the fact that it's a huge thing, then trying to to get the best show. That's where the focus is now.
0: But you already have like some kind of relationship with the Stedelijk Museum. Perhaps you can describe for listeners also.
2: Yeah. My first piece was purchased in 1997. And then there has been a gap. At that time, Rudi Fuchs was director of Stedelijk. And he kind of promised me a room, which never came. <laughs> so yeah, I had like a connection with Stalik like purchasing my work very early in my career. Actually, the first thing that happened when I show in Amsterdam, like serious show, was actually in Stalik Museum during an exhibition of 20 years Suriname art. It was a show in 1996 after 20 years of independence of Suriname. So that show came to the Netherlands. At that time, I, I, I finished art school for like two, three years. I finished the Rietveld Academy. So I know that the show was coming to Suriname and I know that the same show was in Fort Zeelandia in Suriname before it came to the Netherlands. And there were works I made in the Netherlands at that time that were held back from the show because the creators were thinking that the works were not made in Suriname. I was like, who cares, you know, like I do have like a certain these backgrounds. When the show was about to happen in the Netherlands, I call the Stalic and say, like, listen, I'm an artist who has work in the show. I'm working here in Heimstader back in the days. So they came. Fuchs came to the studio. He kind of liked the work. And the idea was that I was thinking, like, can I just add some extra works in the show? You just called up the museum and said, I need to be in the show you're making. Those. Yeah. Well, I was pretty nervous. But <laughs> but yes, I called them. Yeah, I, I think that was a thing you should do as an artist, right? Because otherwise nobody knows that you're working somewhere in the countryside in, 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 in the Netherlands.
0: Do you consider it to be your starting point for your professional career in the Netherlands? That exhibition in the in the time? Mm. Or was there a particular other moment when you felt like I am for now a real a professional artist, I am mm. acknowledged?
2: No, I had that moment in Suriname actually, like the time I've been studying at the Ac- Academy for Higher Arts and Culture Studies in Suriname The first shows we were doing at an art fair in Suriname and at the same time, like my last year in Suriname, I was selling actually a lot of works. So like most of the collectors in Suriname collected my work. So yeah, I felt actually acknowledged in Suriname. And because of that, it gave me the opportunity to move and study in the Netherlands because what I earn and what I save, I kind of managed to study for three years at the Rietveld Academy. So I kind of paid my own study at Rietveld. Yeah, so that actually moment happened in Suriname. And then the next big thing was, was the Stadelik.
0: And in one of your interviews, you stated that being an artist is something you don't consider to be a choice but rather, I would say, a part of, of life, of, of the flow of life. <laughs> Can you describe us what you mean by this? And when did you discover <laughs> that you were an artist or did you notice your flow? So by <laughs> I don't matter? know
2: where you read this. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way I grew up is that it sort of like just happened, even though I didn't grow up in in, in a family that... I grew up in a family that was very creative, but it wasn't like, so like artists. We were just making things to sell for life, you know, like we're making spoon and stuff and repairing the washing machine, building a house and all that stuff. I was always trying to make the extraordinary, even though it was a spoon, even though it was repairing the, the shuffle or repairing a window or whatever. I was always trying to make it different. So I think that's where some sort of curiosity of being an artist happen and the the first moment actually I realized that there is something I described it back in the days that is a, beyond your imagination is when I saw in Mungo the place I was born in the east of Surna, when I saw works of George Baron that was a sculptor Afterwards, he became a windy priest, that's also interesting. He was making, let's say, like pretty great mahogany sculptures. So I saw that as a child of nine or something. And when I saw it, I was was like, wow, if a human being can make this thing, I want to make it. Because when I saw it as a kid, I didn't grow up with museums or whatever. I saw that thing. I thought, like, man, <laughs> this is beyond imagination. So, I saw this artist as a god, and then I want to reach that. Uh, I think, like, from that moment, when I was sold to making.
0: What? What did your parents think of it? Actually,
2: I don't know. My mom passed away pretty early, so I wish she was. She could experience that. Uh, me being into a different position. Well, at the time, I kind of made a decision that I'm gonna be an artist. I'm gonna leave this whole job I was doing. (laughs) But then I decide like, I just gonna go 100% for the arts. So while working in daytime, I went at night to art school. Pretty early on during art school shows at art school, the the Suriname art community is actually pretty small. And I've been actually a very active artist in Suriname, so pretty early on I was already in the newspapers in Suriname. So actually my family, my dad, they were actually proud because suddenly their names were in a place where they actually never thought it would be.
0: So then your playing field perhaps became a little bit too small? And then your ambitions grew, perhaps? In I mean, Suriname? Yes.
2: By you may, you, do you mean by moving to...? Yeah,
0: perhaps, because eventually you, you ended up living in the Netherlands, and mm-hmm. art school here in the Gerrit Rietveld Academy.
2: Yeah. Well, I had great teachers in Suriname. And one of my teachers was Erwin de Vries, who just passed away, I think, like two years ago. And I really liked what he was doing. He was very active. He was very aggressive in the art. And he was always saying, like, you should move out of the country you have to come back but please go and see the world so those words were for me actually the thing to say like i just gonna leave but and then i've been very fortunate that we were invited as the art school in suriname to do a workshop on aruba with a rietveld academy by being in that workshop by doing my artist practice i build an installation explain it way and then were, I was immediately invited to study at the Rietveld Academy just because of what I did. Where did you live when you were studying at the Rietveld? In Amsterdam, at the Tenkatenstraat. Oh, wow. <laughs>
1: so right in the middle of everything. Man, that was a horrible period of
2: time. Well, you know, like coming to the Netherlands as a Surinamese person... The Netherlands was actually a very attractive place for Surinamese people because you could make like one step forward. But you were always so very much dependent on family. So people were actually just living with the family. But I always refused to to go and live with my brother in the living room. So I'd just been suffering and living in cellar paces, No heater, all that stuff. But I sort of like managed to go through it because what What's important at that time is reading Carlos Castaneda, The Flight of the Condor, and that sort of like helped me to understand that to be coming, you have to go through different barriers. So every time you overcome a barrier, you're getting closer to to something else. So that's maybe how I also see the whole artist's career.
0: Is it something that touches upon your perspective on your own work in regards to, you call it, they're very layered. Is it like in life you go through barriers at a certain point you reach more like, I would say the core of your soul or mm. whatsoever. Is it also with your work? Because you, t- you talk about layerness a mm. lot.
2: Right. Well, I think the layering is, can be literally. In the work, if you look at the surface, for instance of the panels, you just see literally certain layers. But the layering is also in the process by working with materials that do come out certain ritual practices. I see the act in the studio as a ritual act and the works are actually the leftovers of that act. What I learned at the art school in Suriname that was actually the most important part of which I'm still carrying in my artistic career. And that's something how, you, how how I connect to the other, to something different. I was happy to understand that there is a lot more than only a Western perspective. And that happened because of the fact that we didn't have modern contemporary art museums. So we know everything actually from from books a very democratic way actually because picasso would stand beside a a maroon tribe object or whatever depending on what kind of book you're looking at
1: and all badly printed maybe even black and white small
2: sometimes black and white sometimes pretty good color i remember for instance the abstracts expressionist those were books some books you could find somewhere in the bookstore in serena but yeah, that kind of teach me that there is something more. And what was also important in Suriname is that we were having the non-Western art history was as important as the Western art history. So we've been talking about India, Indonesia, the Buddha Budur, the call all these art forms of the Americas, the Maya, the Inca, all those influences. And we've been also talking about the aesthetics of the Surinamese Maroons.
1: In in the beautiful catalogue Where the River Runs, A.D. Martis names Jimmy Durham, David Hammonds and Ricardo Bray as mm. three artists that are very close to your heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you say that's still true? And are there any other artists you've been looking at recently or that you feel affinity with?
2: No, they still manage, yeah. And for sure things are different now, but... If you look at the source, I think that's still important because those artists actually teach me that it is possible to work with a culture reference and just stick to that. And what I noticed is that I knew artists who told me like, wow, when I look at your work, I was happy that I I saw that it is possible to work with a culture reference. And that's what artists are telling me. So they also changed their perspective because working in, in Amsterdam, working in Europe, it's very hard to find a way how to explain your work from a different angle. And that's, that's what Durham and Bright teaches me, especially when I read an interview with Durham and Bray during finishing of the Rietveld Academy. I, for the first time, had the idea that I read something which I wish the teachers had read it as well, because at that time, when I read it, I could finish my art school. It gave me such a great insight that what I was
1: thinking and what I was doing that was right. Not not only do you have a solo exhibition at the Stadler coming up, you also represented the Netherlands at the Venice Biennial in 2019, together with Iris Kansmel. And there was a third artist who wasn't present in the show, Stanley Brown, uh, one of the most important Dutch artists of the 20th century, but remains a bit of an artist, artist, maybe, or cult figure. Uh, and then there might also be people who know him from Fluxus, but don't realize he was Dutch. For listeners who might not immediately know who Stanley Brown was, who, who was Stanley Brown? And more importantly, who was Stanley Brown to you? Yeah, but I think for me, the second one, second part is
2: important. Stanley Brown, he's actually a great example of one who find a way according all the other artists with more or less the same background at that time being in the Netherlands who managed actually to keep his practice going even though those time it was hard to work and to get recognized as an artist of color. But for Brown to actually have the act of being invisible and then have the act of being invisible at the period of time of conceptual art. So it's just like a great melting pot of conceptual art and getting invisible. And the question is, would he have survived if he didn't become invisible? And that will stay an open question. So having Brown actually as a spirit in Venice, I thought like that was an important ancestor to carry with you. And even though we're all operating in the Netherlands as Dutch artists, that's also because of we do come from a Dutch heritage. We do come from a colonial Dutch background.
0: Was he a source of inspiration for yourself, perhaps even a mentor from distance? Yeah,
2: well, I, I, I met him twice, and we actually, like, when I met him, we just had, like, normal, a normal conversation. It was actually also two short moments. Well, I know I wish he was a more mentor, that I could have, like, more conversations with him.
0: What I'm also very curious about is when you look back, I would say, at the Venice Biennale, the impact of your work and your presentation in the Pavilion, what resonated with the audience, and perhaps also, in that matter, in your career afterwards?
2: Yeah, I think that needs more time. I think like today, or this is exact two years ago that we did the pavilion. And I'm having a solo show now in in New York. There was a great article in New York Times about the show. It's show is upcoming. And I think like Venice is, Venice is important in the sense like even Venice on its own, being there in that pavilion is already a big achievement. So what's going to happen after Van der will show in time, I think.
1: I think one of the most exciting things to come out of it, but I'm asking this slightly as a as a fan, is that you met Martin Puryear, and and I oh believe my God. you, yeah, you yeah. got to visit him upstate <laughs> in New York. What yes. was that like? Wow, that's
2: just wow. That's like uh, Martin Puryear. That's actually one of the, you know, as so many people, but Martin. That's one of my main inspiration as well, like craftsmanship, that's Martin, yeah. So, if I walk, I've just, I've been walking in Washington, and in the dark I saw this sculpture, and I told my girlfriend, that's a Martin. <laughs> I could smell him from a distance, so we went, oh, that's a Martin. I met him in Venice, we had a chat in his pavilion, he came to visit our pavilion. He gave me his card, his number, and I went to New York the same a few months later, visited him in his studio, and yeah, he gave us a tour, man. And Martin, he told me, like, and that's something which is so big. He was saying, like, listen, he had, like, this huge compound with big studios and a wonderful, and then he said, like, he just started here, you know, like, this. that's where they started up uh, in, in the Catskills, and then it sort of grew. And I was like, yeah, that was amazing. That was a great moment, yeah.
0: So you also explained perhaps that there might be a big chance that you might move to the States again, to New York. I would say perhaps also your other Mm -hmm. hometown.
2: In a way, I feel comfortable, especially in New York. I feel comfortable because if I'm in the scene, I do meet people who... I recognize something in them. I recognize something in their way of looking, in their way of thinking. The arts scene is a lot more people of color in the arts. And if you're walking in Chelsea, you might just meet Carrie Mae Weems on the street or, so I think that energy, that's the different thing in New York, like from the African American, from a Caribbean perspective. So everything you want to get is there. Which is slightly a little different in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, I have the feeling that we need to live long to reach the highest level. So I'm 62 now. And it's actually great to get this solo show, but it was promised me already 20 years ago. So I have to live long to get that recognition. And maybe that's why I'm not like, always super, super exciting about that. That I think like we just got to do the job, you know, for maybe to give space to the next generation so they can sort of have more access to, to these places.
0: But is there some kind of way of connection also with Piet Mondrian? because he was inspired by the city as well? Is it something that drove you to, towards New York or it did, didn't play it any No,
2: experience? not Piet drove me to New York. You know, like this whole story about Piet and the style is that if you look at pattern and geometry and the way I'm using things in my work, it's like you might see a close connection to Mondrian on the style, but to be honest, I just used it to get my work to the audience. I was thinking like, man, I need to find a way how to approach this audience because I know that the work do have referencing that you can connect the style with. But for sure the city, the city of New York is, is an amazing grit <laughs> to look at. And New York is a very vibrant city. A lot is happening. Mondrian has always also been inspired by, by the the boogie woogie, you know. He made his for me maybe his best works. Maybe unfinished victory boogie woogie, which is actually the most vibrant work in this career. And that happened also because of listening to to jazz, you know, like listening to black music.
1: So where do you go for music in, in Amsterdam?
2: Yeah, well, I've I been like a lot to House. Those places I just go to listen to jazz. And I might also go to Alto. at Leidseplein. sometimes a little touristy, but I kind of like the atmosphere. It's raw. You know, you might see, great artist, just like a centimeter from you, playing music.
0: So perhaps also in that matter, because the the podcast is about uh, the art city Amsterdam. Also Amsterdam is layered, of course, in that matter. And perhaps also the architecture here might inspire you because you also have a deep investment, I would say, in architectural form within your works, Mm -hmm. Uh, talking about Gerrit Rietveld. Perhaps any areas in Amsterdam or particular buildings or architecture here in Amsterdam you're inspired by or you find very interesting?
2: Yeah, I think where I live in the area, I'm I'm, I'm living in the 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 south southern part of the city, and I kind of like to take a walk there and and check out the Amsterdam School because actually the whole area is Amsterdam School across the Amstel River, the south of that's a certain part in the south of Amsterdam, which I like to take walks. Yeah, and it's amazing architecture. And then I think also like one important area is a new residential area in the uh, far, the area where the Belmer Bias was. I always cycle past by, there, are like a few modern buildings.
1: And I was a bit early uh, this morning and I took a walk around the neighborhood where your studio is. And I was struck by, and I've been here before, but now coming to you, I was struck by the grids that mm. you're surrounded by here mm. as well. Just right. looking out your window behind the park. Okay. Yeah, It's the grid of the apartment mm. buildings. Mm. Yeah, I think in
2: an unconscious way, I do influence you a lot. And in an unconscious way, it's sort of like connect immediately with the textiles I'm using, the grid textiles.
0: Are there perhaps any, um, any museums you uh, like to visit? Well,
2: I'd say like it's the main museum I like to visit. I have my museum jacquardt.
0: In the Netherlands, um, when visiting museums, as a um, civilian, you have the opportunity to purchase a museum card, which will provide you access to all the museums in the Netherlands. It's called called the Museum Jaard Card, for free. Yeah. For
2: free. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah, I kind of like to just walk in and out, Stalic Museum, just to go see somewhere. I have some favor works there. For sure, some works from... The style, Malevich. One of my most favorite work is from Piero Manzoni. Piero Manzoni with his uh, his monochromes. That's one piece. And they like make, I think, during zero movement. So I always go to see the work, to f- to see like how the same material I'm using, how that is 50 years later or something. And it's an amazing monochrome. The Museum to go see the old masters. I just like to wander around. What I like a lot is these little doll houses. <laughs> With all the little things. I always have to go see them if I'm there. And then for sure, you know, like, all the Rembrandts for The masters, like really amazing,
0: uh, amazing artworks. But you're also one of the scouts, perhaps, I would say for talent within uh, the Netherlands or in Amsterdam, or a mentor perhaps mm-hmm. in the future. Uh, something yeah. is coming up, which I'm not allowed to talk about, <laughs> but I've received some information in regards to that matter. Mm-hmm. Perhaps any talented artists uh, living or working in Amsterdam, we should might keep an eye on?
2: Neil Fortune, amazing name, Fortune. He's a great artist. He's also like, he has a Surinamese, Guyanese background. Came from Guyana, migrated to Suriname, Suriname Rietveld Academy, the Netherlands. Marcel van der Berg, just my neighbor here. I kind of like his way. He's amazing. He reminds me of, of Willem de Kooning.
1: I <laughs> don't know if that's a compliment necessarily. He was, not, he was not a very kind man, I don't think. No,
2: no, but this work, like, it's, yes, oh, okay. it's amazing work. No, not a person, this is the work. <laughs> okay, good. I always supported young artists in a way, and then especially artists who came from Suriname to study at the Rietveld Academy. For me, it was important that they finish art school. So I kind of, like, just support them, you know, like just invite them for Christmas cook dinner or just try to focus on them, especially those kind of... Days where you think like, oh my God, I'm homesick. And always organize things in my house, just to gather people, artists, artists with Surinamese background, some who were born in the Netherlands, but sort of try to create a surrounding of artists you can trust, and artists you can also talk about ideas.
1: And you're leaving us, so other people have to take over the responsibility of, of yeah. creating that space. And I think a lot, yeah, I think a lot happened actually. Like a lot
2: of people took over, and you know, back in the days around 2000, things were changing in the Netherlands. Our stage was changing. So, like we, I think artists of color in the Netherlands, we were already showing in Stelik purchased by museums but then things were changing people were thinking that you were good because of the political issue you're benefiting actually from from politics anyway that brought us together I kind of start talking with artists with similar backgrounds and then we just put on a movement we didn't put a question to blame the other But we were looking at ourselves, that how come we didn't manage to give the other enough information to understand, like, what we're doing. So to get to that knowledge, we had to do more research, actually, to ourselves. And because we did that research, a lot of other movement happens, you know, like artists like Patricia Karsenault, who is a major artist in the Netherlands. Uh, activist, a uh, charlatan who is now working in the research in Stalic Museum. So we kind of build up knowledge because that was important.
0: And this is the Wakaman group.
2: That's the Wakaman group. Yeah, the Wakaman project.
0: So where do you stand at the moment with the Wakaman group? So all this knowledge you've built up, does it does, does it have an, an impact already nowadays? Is it something we can already feel in our surroundings, perhaps?
2: You know, a lot has happened
1: in the last 20 years, but... But you're not going to take credit for it, for all the things that have changed and...
2: No, I can't take it on my own, because I think it's that energy that happened among all the other artists. So what's happening now in the Dutch art scene, it is not because of that fact that there are people now who sort of like putting more the focus on things or... That's a dangerous thing to think that, oh, because of all these people came and sort of like brought it to the attention, we build these people. We created that surrounding and it's hard to take all the credits because it's something which is, it's not directly visible. So the energy we actually add in society, that's where we are now the fact that, for instance, we're having an institution as the Black Archives, that's something that is built out of, I can't say the knowledge of what command, but it built of, of, out of that idea, how to create an old stage. So once somebody told me like, the position I have is that I'm benefiting from the situation nowadays, the political situation nowadays that People are like, oh, the places have to become more diverse and all that stuff. For me, that's just crap because where we're standing, that's what we just build that. So like all the, the institutions who are now into trouble of how to build their society different, that's on demand of the outside and they have to work on it. So it's not my problem now, my, prob- my thing is just to, to go forward and not look actually backwards. I'm not taking position in, in diversity or whatever. I just say like I'm an artist and I try to communicate something and hope that we can find a drawing line in that communication or equalness.
1: So changing tech completely from where we were before? What's your favorite place in the city?
0: We here are now in the Emsel Park. It's one of your favorite places.
2: It is my favorite place. I call it my back garden because I live pretty nearby in uh, in the Sommerdijk street. That is a in a modernistic building that was built by Selstra, I think in 1934, and it was specially made for artists. This place is quiet. It's uh, peaceful. There's a lot to do. The Amsterdam park, I think it was built as a Floriade. I think.
1: Yeah, I, heard, I read it in
0: 1972.
2: And they left it as a park. So yeah, it's a special place to to come and hang out, to let your mind go wherever it goes. Like a walking meditation style, and the vegetation is great. Winter is wonderful. The summer is great. The autumn is nice. No, spring is nice when all the flowers are around with colors.
0: You also like wander around in the, in the park when it's raining, like right now.
2: Well, not often. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so would... now we're entering one of your favorite uh, monuments up here. Yeah, this is a very special
2: monument. I think it's the way it's built i think like there are like 100 chairs what i read and underneath every chair is a are the dates written of the person who was executed the person that was executed in i think at the end of the second world war so what's taking me a lot in this monument that was made by a friend of mine uh, ram katsi is that the place of commemoration because you can sort of sit and and let your mind go and think think about bad things that are happening in the world and especially what happened here in the netherlands with this group of jewish people and what also struck me a lot is if you look at the the ages it's a lot of young people some were just 18 20 between 18 and 35 or something so yes it sort of gives you a no, I think it's a strong monument.
0: Yeah, It's beautifully made, though. Mm. Yeah, I think this
2: is, because maybe it's in my backyard, it's a special thing to come. And always if I come in the Amster park, I just have to pass by and I walk around. Just check the dates. And sometimes I also wonder if my name, like Jungermann, might have been part of this also. Because I like from my dad's side, I do have a, a European... Background. The only thing is that we don't know where they exactly come from. If they travel from, yeah, my uh, my ancestors from farther side. Okay, they might have come. We know that they left Middleburg to Suriname. My great grandfather. Yeah, yeah. But uh, where he traveled from to take the ships in Ceylon to travel to Suriname, that's something we don't know. This is a pavilion, yeah, where they do exhibition. Oh, yeah, Het Glasen is called. And there are like different shows there, which is also nice. You know, like when you come into the park, there is a. Sometimes you just stood on the opening. I guess this is an opening, what I'm looking at. It's also strange that I'm afraid of people.
1: <laughs> oh, walk in front of hey,
2: you. man. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. Hey, how are you
0: doing? Are we allowed to have yeah. a look inside? Is there a lesser-known art space that people should know about, absolutely not miss when they are visiting Amsterdam?
2: Or oh, when visiting Amsterdam, I think W139, W139, that's a place you should really visit.
0: Can you describe it? Because I think for a lot of listeners they probably don't know what it is, what, it, what can we find well, there? Well,
2: it's, it's an art space. It's a, a non-commercial art space, which is actually showing amazing artworks. And it's in the middle of the city the space is huge and yeah you you just get great works that are sometimes experimental
0: i think it's a great breeding ground also for uh, for talent and also the ones who just um, started off their career and That's also right. for them to be noticed for a lot of museum in, mm-hmm. in amsterdam and netherlands right, yeah good choice though all right and then our
1: last question who should we absolutely interview next season for this podcast
2: well, next season you should absolutely interview Patricia Carson out.
1: Very clear answer.
2: We're adding her to the list. I'll be happy with that. She's my favorite artist.
0: Remy, thank you for having us. Your time, your generosity, and also your croissants, tea, and your wonderful stories. We look forward to your solo in the Static Museum, and we hope your ancestors were present in this journey. We will see you soon.
1: Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to our podcast.
0: We thank the Jazz Orchestra of the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam for our podcast tune "Blues for the Date" by Peter Bates. Please check out the rest of their amazing album "Blues for the Date" on Spotify.
1: Art City Amsterdam is produced by Studio Balsam and Stevenson. We are your hosts, Joost Bosland and Rubia Balsam. See you in Amsterdam.